Hello and welcome to The Spectator's Book Club podcast. I'm Sam Leith, the literary editor of The Spectator, and my guest this week is the writer Anne Weber, whose new book is Epic Annette, A Heroine's Tale. And it tells the story of one of the sort of unsung heroines of the Second World War and after, Annette Beaumanoir. Now, Anne, can you start by telling me how you came across Annette Beaumanoir? Well, actually, by chance, I was invited to a small... A few years ago, I was invited to a small documentary film festival in the south of France as a writer to participate in a, after the screening in a round table, and that's what I did. And then afterwards, the audience could comment, and there was this very old, frail, small woman standing up and and she said I remember she told that she was herself in the resistance when she was a very young uh, woman and I was absolutely fascinated by what she already said about herself but also I was so attracted to her as a person because she also was a very beautiful old woman she had this very white hair and, and these luminous blue eyes and her way of speaking was so uh, lively, so vivid, and I absolutely wanted to know her better, and, and then she stayed for, for dinner afterwards. She even took me with her own car, she was 94 at that time, to the restaurant, and then we sat close to each other, and she started telling me a little bit more of, of her story. And then when I, when I went back after this evening, when I went home to Paris, I absolutely knew that I would like to see her again and to know more about her, her story. Did she want to tell her story? I mean, did you sense that she was someone who, who sort of thought, this is a writer, she's going to, to write about me? I mean, was that, did, did the oh, idea that you'd write a book about her come up early? No, not at all, I think. She knew I was a writer, but I'm sure she never thought, and I didn't think either at that time that I would write a book about her, her story. For me, it was just the interest and, and also my fascination for her as a person and as a, maybe also because I'm German and she, during the German occupation of Paris, she saved the life of, of, of two even three uh, Jewish uh, children. That was fascinating me, and I, I'm sure she never thought about herself as some kind of heroine of any kind of a book. She really uh, was the kind of person who think what she did was absolutely evident and natural, and everybody would have done the same thing in her place, which I doubt, but... <laughs> <laughs> so, so do I. Well, can we... So back then and, and talk through some of that story because, you know, you begin your book and, you know, this is it's a little, it's a child and she's in a part of rural France where I think you say, you know, she might as well have been living in the 18th century. In Brittany, yes. It was very far away from Paris and a very closed up region and there were harbours. She was, she was born and close to the sea. So there were openings to the, the, for example, there were very soon when she was maybe 15, there were uh, Spanish refugees already coming in the 30s. So she had this 
these openings to the to the world, and also her parents had a kind of political consciousness, and they were socialists. So she had this uh, influence. But the way of living, of course, in, in Brittany at the beginning of the when she was born in twenty three, it was really a little bit like one hundred or two hundred years before in some ways. And what what was her character as a young girl? I think she was a very lively young girl, and she was very curious. She had a very strong relationship with her grandmother on the maternal side, who was a, a person who did never learn to read and to write. That's I think that was also very important for her evolution later on, because this woman has all the qualities wanted without having instruction. So I think she was a very, yes, very curious, very vivid, and maybe a little bit spoiled because she was the only child of her, of her parents. But I can only guess, you know, I'm not, I'm not a biographer in the sense of I didn't work so much on her childhood, for example, because I didn't pretend to exhaustivity and to cover all the periods of life. And of course, I was just trying to get a sense yeah, of, yeah, yeah. of the seed of what, what she became. But, you know, when the war came, she went, and I think you say it sort of little by little, she found herself in the resistance. But she was quite determined, wasn't she? Talk a bit about how she got involved with what she was doing, because she was very young at the time, wasn't she? Yes, I think she was very determined, but I wanted to make it clear, because that was the way she told me about it, that it was not one precise decision, a special date, or she would remember when she uh, decided to get involved and to go underground. It was something growing up little by little in her mind, and it, it was also, it depended on opportunities she had or she had not when she was in Brittany. She was thinking about getting involved in the resistance, but also had to meet the, the right people. You couldn't just ask someone in the street, are you in the resistance? Can I work with you? And, and can I... You had to find out um, by yourself who could be trusted and who not, and this kind of, of things. And she found herself you know, very much in one, one sector of the resistance, didn't she? She was a member of the Communist Party. And this had implications for the sort of work she was doing and the way she was doing it. And she came to slightly chafe against those implications, to slightly resist, didn't she? Yes, she was in the Communist resistance, and they had a very strict organization, even more uh, strict, I think, than in the Gaullist resistance, where she went later on because she was punished by the communists' uh, network because of her saving these two Jewish uh, children, because she wasn't meant to, to have any individual decisions or initiatives. So, yes, it was very strictly organized, and you only would know two other persons and under false names. But she had, um, in a way, she practiced very soon some kind of resistance against the resistance. I mean, she, would, she would resist these very strict rules because, first of all, she had very young 
a lover. <laughs> this is Roland, her first love. Yeah, her first, her first love was a resistant too, but there wasn't supposed to be any kind of relationship of this sort between the resistant uh, fighters. And then her, her saving of the, these two, even three um, Jewish children was completely forbidden. I mean, as a personal initiative, it represented a, a risk to, to, the, to the whole network. So you, you weren't supposed to, to, by your own, go to some places in order to, to save Jewish people. But she did it, and then she was sent away to Lyon, and they never picked her up. The contact who was, was supposed to pick her up never appeared. So that was the moment where she became closer to the Gaullist uh, resistance. Can you tell that little story of how she saved these lives? Because that, I think, is probably at the centre of why. I mean, she's honoured, I think. And Vashem was righteous among the nations. You know, she... She's earned her stripes there. How, how did she come to save these lives? Yes, that's probably what makes her really a heroine for me. <laughs> you know, the word heroine is a little bit difficult to use, I think, because it was misused in, 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 in the 20th century by the, the sort of cult of heroines. But in this respect, she really is a heroine for me, probably for me as a German more than for others, because she at one point heard about these family, these people hiding in the southern part of, of Paris, somewhere where a roundup took place. She learned about that too. So these people didn't mean anything to her. She, she, she didn't know them at all. She went there to this place and she tried to persuade. There were two adults and three children and they, she tried to persuade these people to come with her because she thought she could save them. And then the two, the father of the two teenagers would permit his children to go with her, but the others were staying behind and the baby was saved the next morning by Annette's boyfriend, Roland, but the two adults who stayed behind were arrested a few days later and were deported and, and murdered. So she really saved two or three lives. And that's why in, in the 90s, 96, she was honored by Yad Vashem and was righteous among the nations. And she stayed in touch, didn't she, long after the war with those, those two people who she saved? Yes, she she first took these two teenagers who were not very much younger than herself, actually. They were even taller because she was a quite small uh, girl and woman. Took them to her own hiding place uh, in the first uh, time. And then she took them to her parents in Brittany where they survived the Nazi persecution and the war. And then the, these two children became... Because they, are, they didn't have anyone anymore for family. And, and they became fame of the Beaumanoir family. They, actually, when, when Anne Beaumanoir died at 98, a few months ago in this year, in March, I met for the first time some descendants of these two teenagers she saved. And they said that they believed for a long time that 
this was part of, her, of their own family. So Anne Manoir's parents gave them the impression to be part of, the, of their own family. And Annette also behaved with them as with uh, brothers and sisters. Now, Annette's life after the war, I mean, Roland, she was separated from, we think he died, didn't he? And there's a kind of extraordinary story where she suddenly, she finds herself heading off to Indochina to marry somebody she barely knows. <laughs> I mean, what was, what was that episode? I mean, it's a sort of little interlude almost, but... Oh, yes, well, <laughs> she was not um, pacifist, I guess. So she had one big regret after the war. She had several regrets, I, I guess. One was that at the end of the war, it was not the Communist Party who would govern France, but the Gaullist party and, and General de Gaulle. So this was not the kind of politics she would have uh, liked to take place in, in France. And also she re another regret was that she had never been able to fight with arms. And that's what she <laughs> would like to do. So when she met this guy who was supposed to go to Indochina, she thought this must be the, the opportunity to at last uh, be able to, to struggle and to fight with, uh, to take arms. But then um, when the, because he was, he was supposed to work as a state officer and when the French state discovered that he was going to, to marry a communist, uh, they wouldn't uh, want him to come to <laughs> China anymore. So, but I also think she was very troubled by everything she had been going through during her time as an underground resistance member. Because, you know, when you're very young, she was 1920, nobody would know you by your real name. When she was in Lyon, she was completely, all her relationships, even uh, with her parents or with some friends she knew before, were cut off. And she just sort of disappeared in the eyes of the society she was fighting for. And if you live in this way for a long time, for quite a long time, completely unknown and with no uh, social relations, no emotional relations to, to people around you, I think it's really troubling for someone at her age at the time. So there may have been also just a wish to marry anyone, to marry the first person you, she met who would like to, to marry her because she had this lack of social relations and love. Do you think it damaged her? I mean, do you think she looked back on that with pain? I mean, I think she did have, she conceived a child with Roland, didn't she? Almost around the time she was performing this act of heroism and saving these people that she had an abortion with Boulogne, is that right? Yes, it, it was really a crazy story because, as you said, nearly more or less the same day when she saved these children, she had, or the day after, she had an abortion and she lost the child she, she had conceived with, with Roland, with her first love. Because, obviously, this was not the moment to have a children. 
and she was underground fighter and she was uh, just 20 years old and she, they were not married and it was just not possible. But it's a, a very strange and strong coincidence. Yeah. Now, what's really peculiar about your book and, and fascinating to me is that you know the story of what she did during the war is only part of her story and in a way the more unusual part is what what came to follow because she goes and she lives quite a conventional life in France and she works as a is it a neurologist or yes she has a she's you know has a medical degree and she's leading a very very conventional life and then she sort of you know the Algerian independence war or civil war kicks off and suddenly she's essentially back in the resistance yes but for her, it was there was some continuity because in the Second World War, she was fighting against the German occupation, some country invading another country and sort of colonization too of France and of parts of Europe by the Germans. And now it was the other way around. I mean, France colonizing for, for a long time already the Maghreb and, and Algeria, and Algeria being part of France, not only an ex, but really these were French departments, districts, but the Algerians there were not at all treated in the same way as plain um, French citizens. So this kind of injustice and also this kind of continuity in the methods, because when she decided to get involved in this Algerian independent movement, it was because she read a book about the French army torturing people, the, the Algerian prisoners in Algeria, with the methods of the Gestapo. So this was something she couldn't bear because this time it was even worse because she was as a French woman, she was this time on the, at the side of, of the oppressor and of the torturers. So she, in a way, she felt she had to go into this new kind of resistance. Did she talk to you about how her view of de Gaulle changed? Because towards the end of the war or, or after the end of the war, there's a moment where she's in the room with de Gaulle and, you know, he's this godlike, charismatic figure. Hmm. And she's obviously, you know, he's kind of a hero to her. But, you know, they're very much on, on the opposite side when it comes to Algeria. And did she feel betrayed by him? I think she had the greatest respect for the person, but she didn't like at all the politics he stood for. And even later in the, in the 50s, at the end of the 50s, when she, when she was in prison, you know, she... She would read his memoirs. She, she read the memoirs of de, de Gaulle, which also means something about her interest in, and her fascination maybe for the, the person. And, but she really didn't agree with his conservative way of conceiving politics. So it was both. But she was a, a person who could appreciate someone and separate a person from his ideas. No. You know, when she decided she was going to get involved in the struggle for Algerian independence, you know, what did that mean? I think it was a little bit as it was for the resistance 
it was not one decision, but she, first of all, she, she carried some letters or some material from one place to the other. Then she gave a lift to some responsible of the FLN, of the independence movement in the south of France where, where she lived. So, so again, little by little, she became more and more involved and also, there was the, a moment where she decided that she would have a sabbatical and she would leave her job. And it was not really in a, to be in, an un, in the underground, but she took a year off because she was working already in a, in a clinic in a hospital in Marseille as a neurologist. And she was doing nothing else than looking for hiding places and also for a long time, quite a long time, collecting, transporting money. The Algerians were collecting in France and in Algeria. The Algerians were asked for to give money to them to the movement, to support the movement. And there were French uh, citizens, most of, of the time French citizens, there were French couriers transporting this money, kind of a tax, to Switzerland and then to, to Tunisia, where it was... Before the independence, there was an Algerian government in Tunis, and this money was transported by, by French couriers to safe places where it could be used by the, by the Algerian army. And what she was doing was... I mean, one of the things we should fill in for the background, you know, she had a husband and small children I mean, was what she was doing very dangerous? I think it was not so much dangerous for her life at that time, but she was taking risk to get arrested and to lose, to be separated from her children and from her family. And that's what, what happened. Because when she was arrested in 1959, soon after she was sentenced to 10 years prison by a French military court, and actually, as she was pregnant, uh, when she was arrested with her third child, they would let her out under house arrest for the time of giving birth. In this time, she managed to escape. It was more easy, easier than to escape from, from prison. But she was obliged to leave her three children, little children, one newborn, behind her. So she escaped and she went first to Switzerland and then to Tunis and then in 62 to Algeria. And she was not able to come back because she was threatened, still threatened with this 10 years of prison sentence. So that was the real risk she took. And afterwards, later on, I think she also risks her own life because the supporters of the Algerie Francaise, of the French Algerie, of uh, the supporters of Algeria's belonging to France, they were very violent and they killed uh, a lot of uh, FLN supporters. So this was a risk, but at the beginning it was more the risk to be completely separate from, the, from her family and children. And so she's in exile, you know, first in Tunisia, then in Algiers for a very long time. And she becomes, I think you say, you know, she's now, she's not very well known, but 
She was on the front page of Le Figaro when she was arrested. You know, she's, she's quite notorious. I mean, what did she feel about this, the way her life had been kind of wrenched out of its course and she was suddenly mm. in exile in another country, she's separated from her children, she's, she goes home, she's threatened with 10 more years in prison. I mean, did she feel this was a sacrifice that was worth it for her principles? No, I don't think she thought it in, in, in this way. At the beginning, when she was arrested, I think she thought it would be possible for her husband and for the children to to go out of French and to rejoin her. But it appeared that the French state wouldn't let them out. So this was impossible. And she still tried by some ways to, to meet them on the sea when, by boat and... and she tried a lot of things, but then she had to acknowledge that she had lost her family. This was a really difficult moment for her. But I think she, of course, she regretted what she did in a way, but I think she believed in her good star, in, in, in a kind of success she would have, you know, as she wasn't arrested during the Second World War and during the, her resistance time, she thought probably that everything would, would be fine for her. She believed in her good luck, I think. And then it was, from one moment to the other, it was too late. There was no going back. And this was something very sorrowful for her and for her children, for her their whole life. So... I think she regretted, but if you can't do anything anymore about it, you just have to go on and, and live and make what is possible to do where you are. For example, in the first years in Algeria, as she was a, a doctor, she was working in the, in the Ministry of Health and trying to reorganize the health system there because a lot of French doctors went back to homeland uh, France after the war, after the independence, and that kind of thing. So she plunged into, into work, and that was her, her way of healing, maybe, herself. But how did she feel when, you know, after what she's fought for has come to pass, she sacrificed everything, Algeria is independent, and then not long after, but, you know, she's quite close to the government, you know, she was very involved with the president. But then... There's a military coup, and suddenly there's a brutal military dictatorship has taken over everything she's fought for. How did she respond to that? I think this was maybe the worst moment for her, because until this time, she still could tell herself, well, I sacrificed so much, but at least this will be now a good, democratic, independent country, Algeria. But then she had to discover that, no, that this wasn't going to happen. And it was a kind of military dictatorship or autocracy, at least, until nowadays. Because there was one president who stayed a long, very long time, Bouteflika. He died just two or three years ago. And these people were people who Annette still knew from that time. So... 
there were clans and networks still in place for decades. People who appropriate themselves the resources of this country and and the power, all the power. So it was really, I suppose, the biggest deception of her life. And how long did it take her eventually to be able to come back to France? Well, she had to wait nearly 10 years. After this coup in Algeria in 65, she had to flee again and she went to Switzerland where she worked at the, the university hospital in Geneva for which she headed for, for quite a long time. And during these years, she sometimes went to France under false name and with false papers, risking to be arrested, but to see her children for a short time. From time to time, that's what she did. And she could come back to France nine or ten years later only. Do you know her children when you, were, when you got to know Annette? Did you meet her children? Did you get a sense of how they viewed their mother's experiences? When I met her, she was already 94 and two of her children died already. There's just one of her sons is living still and, and I didn't meet him before I, I, I wrote the book, but I met him uh, later on. And I think the children had a quite difficult, of course, relationship to her mother because she went away, she, she was not there, she was never present when they were children. So it was love and reproach at the same time. And was she, you know, now that, if you like, the kind of anger towards her for, you know, resisting France and the Algerian war obviously had subsided, people have agreed that, in general, broadly, that letting Algeria go was the right thing to do. Was she celebrated in France? Was she thought well of? Was she thought of at all? I mean, is she, is she a well-known figure in France? Um, no, she's not uh, completely unknown. There, there has been a documentary film, for example, about her and her life a few years ago in the regional uh, French programme. But she's not at all the kind of officially honoured person like, you know, a few years ago there were two women who had been in the resistance who were transferred to the Pantheon, where the place where French, kind of French heroes are, are buried. She would never be at that place because she's still considered as a, I would say, as a terrorist or at least for, of a supporter of terrorists for her involvement in the Algerian independence war because she didn't throw or put any bombs anywhere but the people she supported did. This, this was a kind of guerrilla war and they put bombs in the streetcars or in, a cafe, in cafes and there were a lot of civilians who died. Can I ask, I mean, one of the, when you came to write her story, one of the most remarkable decisions you made was to write it as poetry. What, what made you do that? I mean, it's very easy to read poetry, but it's a piece of epic verse. What led you to that decision? It's an unusual one. Well, at the beginning of my writing, there was the question, how can I tell about someone who's still alive? 
who really exists. I mean, that's not some, someone, someone I invented, but this woman lives. She sits here in front of me and tells me her story and trusts me enough to, to tell me her, her story. So was this story now at my free disposal? Could I do anything I like with it just because she told me about it? or what I was supposed to do. And I felt um, sort of scruples from the beginning. I felt it was impossible for me to make a conventional novel out of it, because that would have meant to alienate the story, to invent dialogues, for example, to put into the this woman's mouth words she never said. Also, I, I thought, well, isn't this life adventurous enough? Why should I? fictionalize anything? Why, why should I invent something? So I decided that I would have to stick to what I could find out about her life. And at the same time, I'm not a biographer, which means I don't have the same methods as a biographer. I don't have the pretension to be exhaustive and I don't have the pretension to be objective at all. I think literature is kind of radical subjectivity and not the contrary. So how was I supposed to to do? And then when I, I, I thought of it, I remembered that there actually is a very ancient literary form in which the deeds of heroes, not of heroines for the moment, but of heroes are told or, or better in which they are sung. Because this was the possibility to not to fictionalize so much the story, but to put it into, into a certain rhythm and also to tell it from my own perspective. And it, maybe it's also a way to, yes, not to fictionalize, but to maybe transform it into a sort of legend. That's what I tried to do without glorification. And I discovered that even if you, if you try not to fictionalize, even if you try to, to stick to what you know about what happened, as long as you're telling a story, you're obliged to use your imagination. The imagination always would play a role in, in it, because otherwise you just, it would be just a, a list of dates and nothing else. Even a biographer uses his imagination. And I think sometimes biographers think they are in possession of the truth about someone. I also wanted to show, to make it clear that I'm not in the possession of the, the truth about Anne Beaumanoir. For the reader, it feels in some ways like a book about disillusionment as well as heroism. Mm -hmm. I mean, that she... She invests all of her hopes in the Communist Party and is bitterly disappointed. She invests all of her hopes in the Algerian independence movement and is disappointed. When she looked back on her life, did she do so with some regret or a feeling, you know, in some respects I was a fool, or with pride that she followed what she believed in? It's difficult to say, but because if she felt pride, she would never tell it. As I said, she uh, felt like everybody would have done in this, behaved in the same way as she did. 
So she didn't seem to feel pride at all, but maybe that's a characteristic for heroes or heroines too. I mean, if they would, if they felt like heroes or heroines, maybe they wouldn't be a hero or a heroine. I don't know. She ha definitely had regrets, and I think she also was pride of some things. And one thing she told me. The only thing she told me she was proud of was saving the two Jewish uh, children during the war. She had this certificate from Yad Vashem about herself being made righteous among the nations, which hung at her wall where she lived in, in the south of France, in Dieu And this was something she was really proud of, and she showed it to me and she was photographed with it, and she liked it. But this was really the only thing she admitted that she was proud of. Anne Weber, thank you very much indeed for your time. Thank you.